Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be with you today. Today I want to talk to you about a nuanced perspective, a nuanced approach to doctrine. This is based on an article I wrote, and I've been writing several articles that uh, that what I'm hoping will do is will explain to both the orthodox believer why these issues are messy, while at the same time validating the doubter, and in the end showing how someone can put these issues back together in a way that still leads with faith. And so with that, let's jump into a nuanced approach to doctrine. To the Orthodox believer who still holds belief that doctrine in our faith equals truth, or that the idea when the prophet speaks or when all 15 top leaders are unified, that we have certainty that God has spoken, it may not be that simple. Let's explore. First off, let me say I absolutely validate that doctrine in the church as a word has been used unanimously by our culture and even officially within our church to mean absolute truth from God. When we speak of the doctrines of the church, we speak of the most serious guiding principles of our faith. The church defines doctrine in this way. Doctrine is the word of God as found in the scriptures and in the teachings of latter-day prophets and apostles. This seems simple enough, but let's explore the many ways doctrine comes to us. Number one, canonize scripture. Scripture is defined by the church as words, both written and spoken by holy men of God, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. To go one step further, canonize scripture is defined by the church in this way. Quote, the authoritative collection of the sacred book's used by the true believers in Christ. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the canonical books are called the standard works, unquote. Many Latter-day Saints assume that all canonized scripture is the word of God. But take a listen to Brigham Young and how he defined scripture. Quote, I have heard some make the broad assertion that every word within the lids of the Bible was the word of God. I have said to them, You have never read the Bible, have you? Oh, yes, and I believe every word of it, every word in it, is the word of God. Well, I believe the Bible contains the word of God, and the words of good men, and the words of bad men, and the words of good angels, and the words of bad angels, and the words of the devil, and also the words uttered by the ass when he rebuked the prophet in his madness. I believe the words of the Bible are just what they are. But aside from that, I believe the doctrines concerning salvation contained in that book are true and that their observance will elevate any people, nation, or family that dwells on the face of the earth. The doctrines contained in the Bible will lift to a superior condition 
all who observe them. They will impart to them knowledge, wisdom, charity, fill them with compassion and cause them to feel after the wants of those who are in distress or in painful or degraded circumstances. That's Brigham Young from the Journal of Discourses, uh, book 13, section uh, 175, maybe it's page 175, May 29th, 1870. Brigham seemed to hold a very nuanced view of canon in scripture that in essence found within it is the, quote, word of God, but that the words are not necessarily, quote, the words of God, that not all the ideas, stories, and wording can be described as the mind and will of God. Joseph Smith seemed to hit on this as well, for example, when he suggested that the Song of Solomon was not inspired writings. Yet, consider this, the Song of Solomon is canonized scripture. That is not debated. It is part of our canon and has been accepted by the saints as such. In essence, one is not debating whether it is scripture, but rather whether it contains the word of God. It should also be added as a paradox that while Joseph taught the Song of Solomon is not inspired writing, Joseph also used wording from the Song of Solomon three times within his revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. In light of this, we could go further in recognizing that from member to member in our faith, there will be differences in whether one takes certain stories as literal, figurative, or allegorical, or simply as the words of men. Even leaders have disagreed on such concepts. Take, for instance, these quotes from several leaders suggesting many aspects of the creation garden and fall are likely figurative. And I have to stop here and just say that there are several quotes, which I won't, I won't share here, but in the article on the website, mormondiscussionpodcast.org is, is a link to that page where one can read those quotes. Let's go to number two, another place that we recognize, um, being a true source of doctrine, the prophet. While we believe that prophets can communicate with God, the question is how to recognize when that is happening and what our expectations should be of how often this happens. Many Latter-day Saints suggest that when the prophet declares information was received from God, it can be trusted as such. Except consider the following examples. Brigham Young taught several ideas as God-revealed doctrine that we now disavow as false. One of these was regarding Adam, the first mortal, as actually being Elohim, or Heavenly Father. Brigham taught this repeatedly, and in official venues such as General Conference, and can be seen, again, we have quotes here linked, you can go to the article, you can see those, but there are multiple sources of scholarship that go over each of these quotes, and there's not just one or two of them. Uh, and I should stop here and say that when I when I joined the church, and I began reading deeply about church history, I came across the Adam-God theory, as I was told, uh, very early on. And the explanation given to me was that, you know, once or twice in the Journal of Discourses, Brigham says this kind of idea, but it's somewhat vague. And the reality is that I think people misunderstand him because in the very next page, he he teaches the very correct understanding of Adam. And so, obviously, it's the critic who's misunderstanding what, what Brigham is saying. The truth is that there are dozens of quotes. And when you put it all together as a whole, it is obvious that Brigham Young felt deeply and taught deeply that that Adam, the first being on this mortal earth, was also God, our eternal father. 
And, and I think that's, that's the real crux of this particular issue. In terms of where he got the idea, it's debated. But the key is Brigham declared publicly to the saints that it had come from God by revelation. For example, let me at least read this quote. And this is Brigham Young speaking. Quote, how much unbelief exists in the minds of the Latter-day Saints in regard to one particular doctrine which I revealed to them and which God revealed to me, namely that Adam is our father and our God. I do not know. I do not inquire. I care nothing about it. Prophet Brigham Young, Deseret News, Volume 22, Number 308, June 8th, 1873. Essentially what Brigham's saying is, look, God's told me, and I'm telling you, and there's lots of saints who are struggling with it, but I don't care anything about them struggling with it because it is truth. President Young didn't care how many members disagreed because he felt secure that this doctrine had come from God. The trouble is that President Kimball runs counter to President Young's teaching when he stated the following. This is in November 1976 in the Enzyme article, Our Liahona, quote, We warn you against the dissemination of doctrines which are not according to the scriptures and which are alleged to have been taught by some of the general authorities of past generations. Such, for instance, is the Adam-God theory. We denounce that theory and hope that everyone will be cautioned against this and other kinds of false doctrine. Spencer W. Kimball. There are several instances of this occurring on one scale or another, but suffice it to say that even when prophets claim to have received doctrine from God, it is not always the case. It may be helpful to keep in mind that Joseph Smith said a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. Elder Christofferson clarified this point when he said at the same time, it should be remembered that not every statement made by a church leader, past or present, necessarily constitutes doctrine. It is commonly understood in the church that a statement made by one leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered opinion, not meant to be official or binding for the whole church. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that a prophet is a prophet only when acting as such. Unquote. But it should also be noted that when multiple leaders state on multiple occasions some teaching, we still have instances of the said teaching being incorrect. And so let's go into that one, which is number three, when all 15 top leaders are unified. This goes one step further than number two, and essentially is based on the premise that while the prophet might declare and institute false doctrine, that when all top 15 men are unified on a matter, it can be trusted to be the word of God. This seems to be reinforced by Elder Neil L. Anderson when he said the following, quote, a few question their faith when they find a statement made by a church leader decades ago that seems incongruent with our doctrine. There is an important principle that governs the doctrine of the church. The doctrine is taught by all 15 members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. It is not hidden in an obscure paragraph of one talk. True principles are taught frequently and by many. Our doctrine is not difficult to find. Unquote. But this concept is also problematic. Consider the following example. Starting with Brigham Young, people with black skin were banned from priesthood and ordinances of the temple, saving ordinances. Our leaders officially pronounced theories surrounding this policy. Except they didn't tell you that these were theories. They taught them as if they were doctrine, and in some cases, even officially. Now, let me give one example of how far some of these quotes go. For example, Marky e. Peterson taught, quote, If that Negro is faithful all his days... He can and will enter the celestial kingdom. He will go there as a servant, but he will get a celestial resurrection. 
he will get a place in the celestial glory. Now that sounds really harsh, but among these teachings were some that were really official. This the the Marky Peterson quote was given at a BYU talk, and apologists and others have just set it off to the side and said, "Look, man, the guy's just speaking as a man. He got it wrong. The church doesn't even want to acknowledge that quote anymore. Let's just move on." And I'm okay with that. But among these teachings, there were some that were very official. These included. People with black skin had the curse of Cain, that they were less valiant in the pre-mortal life, and that interracial marriage is sin. In the 1940s, we have two documented instances where the church states that such teachings are official doctrines of the faith. The first is a written correspondence between Dr. Lowry Nelson in the First Presidency, where George Albert Smith and his counselors declare to Dr. Nelson the following, quote, and this is speaking of... Um, Dr. Lowry Nelson is, is suggesting to the brethren that they reconsider their position on how they're treating those of color if they want the missionary work to go forward in countries uh, such as the African countries where the church wants to kind of, you know, get the, get the gospel moving forward in these places and yet they're going to be really limited. And so here's what the first presidency responds back to. Uh, Dr. uh, Lowry Nelson, quote, This is contrary to the very fundamentals of God's dealings with Israel, dating from the time of his promise to Abraham regarding Abraham's seed and their position vis-a-vis God himself. Indeed, some of God's children were assigned to superior positions before the world was formed. Your position, they go on, your position seems to lose sight of the revelations of the Lord touching the pre-existence of our spirits, the rebellion in heaven, and the doctrines that our birth into this life and the advantages under which we may be born have a relationship in the life hereafter. They continue, quote, From the days of the prophet Joseph, even until now, it has been the doctrine of the church, never questioned by any of the church leaders, that the Negroes are entitled to the full blessings of the gospel. And then they go on and say a couple more things. They say this, quote, Furthermore, your ideas, as we understand them, appear to contemplate the intermarriage of the Negro and the white races, a concept which has heretofore been most repugnant to most normal-minded people from the ancient patriarchs to now. God's rule for Israel, his chosen people, has been endogamous. And then they finish, they say, We are not unmindful of the fact that there is a growing tendency particularly among some educators, ed- educators, as it manifests itself in this area, toward the breaking down of race barriers in the matter of intermarriage between whites and blacks. But it does not have the sanction of the church. It is contrary to church doctrine. We also have the 1949 First Presidency Letter, which says this. It says, quote, The position of the church regarding the Negro may be understood when another doctrine of the church is kept in mind. Now, see, it can't be another doctrine unless the position of the Negro is also the first doctrine he's talking about. Another doctrine of the church is kept in mind, namely that the conduct of spirits in the premortal existence has some determining effect upon the conditions and circumstances under which these spirits take on mortality, and that while the details of this principle have not been made known, the mortality is a privilege that is given to those who maintain their first estate, and that the worth of the privilege is so great that spirits are willing to come to earth and take on bodies no matter what the handicap may be as to the kind of bodies they are to secure. 
and that among the handicaps, failure of the right to enjoy immortality, the blessings of the priesthood, is a handicap which spirits are willing to assume in order that they might come to earth. Under this principle, there is no injustice whatsoever in the deprivation as to the holding of the priesthood from the Negroes. As we can see, to have the top 15 men, all prophets, seers, and revelators, united on some teaching or belief does not necessarily make it truth or, quote, true doctrine. Hopefully you'll see that it is messy and that arriving at truth simply by believing another person or group of people, regardless of their authority, has the risk of being wrong. This leads to another point. We often in our manuals, lessons, and talks repeat a teaching that originated with Wilford Woodruff and Heber J. Graham. The quotes are as follows. The first one, quote, I say to Israel, the Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of the church to lead you astray. It is not in the program. It is not in the mind of God. The Discourses of Wilford Woodruff, page 212 to 213. This quote is problematic. If we take it to mean that the prophet will never teach false doctrine and never lead many of the saints to believe and implement said false teachings into their lives, we have already shown above that such occurs. So what can it mean to lead astray? This is a tough question that must be approached carefully. One thought would be that while the prophet may err and may lead the church down a false path on various ideas, that he can never be permitted to corrupt the saving ordinances and cause the priesthood to retreat back into the wilderness. Regardless of how one reframes such an interpretation, we must step outside of the cultural interpretations we have used to frame such things. Even Elder Bruce R. McConkie admits that the Lord permits prophets to introduce and to disseminate false doctrine throughout the church when he says, quote, Nonetheless, as Joseph Smith so pointedly taught, a prophet is not always a prophet, only when he is acting as such. Prophets are men, and they make mistakes. Sometimes they err in doctrine. Yes, President Young did teach that Adam was the father of our spirits, and all the related things that he that the cultist ascribed to him. This, however, is not true. He expressed views that are out of harmony with the gospel. I do not know all the providences of the Lord, but I do know that he permits false doctrine to be taught in and out of the church, and that such teaching is part of the sifting process of mortality. That's Elder Bruce R. McConkie. The second quote is another oft-used quote from Marion G. Romney in General Conference, repeating a story from his youth. Quote, I remember years ago when I was a bishop and I had President Heber J. Grant talk to our ward. After the meeting, I drove him home. Standing by me, he put his arm over my shoulder and said, My boy, you always keep your eye on the president of the church. And if he ever tells you to do anything, and it is wrong, and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it. Then with a twinkle in his eye, he said, But you don't need to worry. The Lord will never let his mouthpiece lead the people astray. That was... Uh, Heber J. Grant, uh, I'm sorry, that was Mary G. Romney repeating what Heber J. Grant had told him in the conference report October 1960. Now, since we have already covered the complexity of being led astray, the issue here in this quote is whether one will be blessed for following the prophet even if one feels he is wrong. The quote could be interpreted to mean follow the prophet in the church generally, even if one dissents and does not follow a specific issue. I personally can hold that space, and it still leaves the statement to be true in a much more nuanced way. In asking the question of whether we can follow a leader on specific instances, 
where we feel them to be wrong, we should consider the following quote from Joseph Fielding Smith. He says, quote, Standard works judge teachings of all men. It makes no difference what is written or what anyone has said if what has been said is in conflict with what the Lord has revealed. We can set it aside. My words and the teachings of any other member of the church, high or low, if they do not square with the revelations, we need not accept them. Let us have this matter clear. We have accepted the four standard works as the measuring yardsticks or balances by which we measure every man's doctrine. You cannot accept the books written by the authorities of the church as standards and doctrine only insofar as they accord with the revealed word in the standard works. Every man who writes is responsible, not the church, for what he writes. If Joseph Fielding Smith writes something which is out of harmony with the revelations, then every member of the church is duty-bound to reject it. If he writes that which is in perfect harmony with the revealed word of the Lord, then it should be accepted, unquote, by Joseph Fielding Smith. Mormon Church President Spencer W. Kimball stated when referring to the quote about following even when wrong, that he was concerned and that it possibly would lead to a quote, unthinking, follow the leader mentality. This is after President Benson repeated the quote in a, a talk at BYU. Soon after, the Quorum of the Twelve in the First Presidency called Elder Benson in to have a chat with him. And Spencer W. Kimball and the rest of the brethren admonished Elder Benson, who was president of the Twelve, I believe, at the time, to to slack off of this kind of idea of following the brethren even when they're wrong. And President Kimball related that he was worried that this would convey an unthinking, follow-the-leader mentality. Consider this quote in the church's official periodical, which seems to teach the exact opposite of the quote about following even when they're wrong and being blessed for it. This is from the 13 November 1852 Millennial Star. The questions is sometimes asked, to what extent is obedience to those who hold the priesthood required? This is a very important question, and one which should be understood by all saints. In attempting to answer this question, we would repeat in short what we have already written, that willing obedience to the laws of God administered by the priesthood is indispensable to salvation. But we would further add that a proper conservative to this power exists for the benefit of all, and none are required to tamely or blindly submit to a man because he has a portion of the priesthood. We have heard men who hold the priesthood remark that they would do anything they were told to do by those who presided over them if they knew it was wrong. But such obedience as this is worse than folly to us. It is slavery in the extreme. And the man who would thus willingly degrade himself should not claim rank among intelligent beings until he turns from his folly. I finished this article with the Lord's own words found in the DNC in the very first section. The Lord seems to be setting the tone for what to expect from our leaders and to permit the room for them to be very flawed at times. DNC 1, verses 17 through 28, quote, Wherefore I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and spake unto him from heaven and gave him commandments, and also gave commandments to others, that they should proclaim these things unto the world, and all this that it might be fulfilled which was written by the prophets. The weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty and strong ones, that man should not counsel his fellow man, neither trust in the arm of flesh, but that in every man speak in the name of God the Lord, even the Savior of the world. Their faith also might increase in the earth, that mine everlasting covenant might be established. And then 
Notice the criteria coming up. Here we go. Quote, that the fullness of the gospel might be proclaimed by the weak and the simple under the ends of the world before kings and rulers. Behold, I am God and I have spoken it. These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. And inasmuch as they erred, it might be made known. And inasmuch as they sought wisdom, they might be instructed. And inasmuch as they sinned, they might be chastened, that they might repent. And inasmuch as they were humble, they might be made strong and blessed from on high and receive knowledge from time to time. God seems to be saying that our leaders are humans, just like you and me. They are weak, they will err, and they will sin. They will at times teach us false doctrines. But as we all move forward in faith, we as a church might from time to time receive the word of God every once in a while. Brothers and sisters, it's my prayer that as we gather and understand and become informed of the messiness of what is doctrine and what are the sources for that doctrine, we might be more willing to rely on what the scriptures tell us to learn by study and by faith. God bless you. May the Lord warm your shoulders in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Shoes never